Okay, I think we're going to get started. Um, it's about 12.03. <clears throat> so, um, others can continue to trickle in, but I do want to give enough time for everyone to speak. Um, my name is Bonnie Jenkins, and I am the founder and executive director of WCAPS. Um, I apologize, my screen is not on, but I'm only going to be on for like a minute because the real focus of the discussion is not me, but these amazing panelists that we have today. Um, so you are going to be listening to a presentation today on global response to COVID-19. I wanna thank um, all of our panelists for joining us today. Um, I also want to uh, thank uh, our co-chairs of our uh, our working group on global health, um, who are um, here listening in um, as well. Um, so, um, Rawa Osman and Jennifer Amby, who I know are here. So, I want to thank them also for all the work that they are doing uh, for for all of us. Um, so, I'm going to stop talking and turn it over to a really good friend of mine, Leticia, who's going to introduce herself. She's going to introduce the panelists and we will have a very good conversation. Um, if anyone's interested in finding out more about WCAPS, uh, if you're not a member, you can certainly go to our website, wcaps.org, that's wcaps.org, find out more about the organization and some of the activities that we are doing. In addition to the work on global health, we have a number of other things that we do in the area of peace and security. Uh, so with that, I'm going to turn it over to you, Leticia. Thank you, Bonnie. Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us. As Bonnie mentioned, we're going to have a discussion here about the global response to COVID-19. We have four wonderful panelists, each with regional expertise and work experience in regions um, like East Africa, MENA, South Asia, and Latin America, who are each going to talk us through what has been the response to COVID-19 in their respective areas, and what have been some of the considerations that have have been done either on a country level or a regional level to try to combat COVID-19. My lovely panelists joining us are Dr. Amir Roas, Ms. Nikita Shukla, Ms. Maria Espinoza Carrillo, and Dr. Shab Dr. Shabnum Safraz. Thank you so much for joining me, ladies. I think that we'll open up our conversation by asking a, a very high level question. How has the response to COVID-19 been in your respective regions of operation? And um, Nikita, if we can start with you. Absolutely, thank you so much for having me. And first of all, I uh, just wanna reiterate that I'm here in an individual capacity, uh, just to put that a uh, little uh, disclaimer out. But I also just wanna note that I'm focusing on the East African region and there's incredible diversity and variation in terms of the burden of disease and the po population density within this region. I mean, you have one of the most populated countries in Africa, Ethiopia located here, and then one of the least populated, which is Seychelles. So going back to the question about the first few days of COVID, the first case was reported in Kenya uh, in early March. And then within that week, they had completed contract tracing, isolated two patients, and the president, Kenyatta, had followed all of the mitigation and suppression me measures in terms of 
curbing the disease by restricting travel, working from home, canceling large meetings, and implementing regular cleaning. And this also similarly happened in Rwanda, another East African country, where they were actually the first country to order a total shutdown of movement within the country and in and out of the country. So that was really exciting to see within the first few days of COVID-19. But on the other hand, um, you have countries like Burundi, which neighbor Rwanda, where they had merely quarantined 34 of the people that were suspected of COVID. And a lot of political turmoil in that country, the president had decried that Burundi is an exception to COVID because the country has put God first and they had refused to introduce any social distancing or lockdown rules. And even when WHO and other international organizations had questioned the government's statistics and questioned the government's tactics to mitigating coronavirus, um, he actually expelled them from the country. So we're seeing completely different uh, responses from neighboring countries, one being Rwanda, the other being Burundi. And actually yesterday it came out in the news that he died of complications from COVID-19. So it's extremely varied. And in one hand, there's, a, there's very tight control. On the other hand, there is a lot of fear and a lot of confusion um, from countries. Thank you very much, Nikita. Um, Dr. Ross, can we speak to how you've seen COVID-19 unfold in your region of expertise? Yes. Um, so the Middle East is very diverse. And um, just like the previous speaker mentioned, you know, there's a great diversity um, within the region and then also within countries, right? So for example, you do find in the Gulf states in the Middle East, while there's you know, a considerable amount of wealth, there are also uh, populations that are extremely vulnerable to COVID-19 and other health disparities or health issues. Um, the migrant workers are one really important group. Um, another group are the internally displaced and the refugees. And so you do find considerable uh, uh, disparities in response and how the virus impacts um, individuals within a country um, and also across the region. Um, the first case was confirmed in the UAE on February 26th. And since then, there have been many cases uh, in most of the countries throughout the Middle East. Um, it's important to you know, really consider the response uh, in terms of the history of MERS coronavirus, which in some ways prepared the Gulf countries uh, to better respond to these respiratory uh, uh, outbreaks. Um, for example, because of MERS coronavirus, we have really good um, infrastructure within the hospitals. We have negative pressure rooms and things like that. And so you do see that there's been some improvement in um, what, what we think, um, what, what the response would have looked like uh, in the Gulf had we not had MERS and had that sort of uh, preparation in place. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have areas like Syria, Yemen, um, Northern Sudan and Libya, where there's very little information coming in and where the healthcare infrastructure has really been decimated um, because of uh, conflict over the years. And there are uh, many issues regarding regional collaboration and sharing of data to better understand 
transmission of your neighbor and to help countries prepare for possible introductions. And so we've really seen uh, how that has impacted and in some ways um, hindered the response. Um, we're also hoping that this is going to lead us to an opportunity to improve regional collaboration and regional dialogue. And we're starting to see a little bit of that, um, but we're also really concerned with the surge in cases that we're seeing right now in Iran and in Egypt, among other places. Um, you know, quite a few places were not able to really quarantine well or to enforce quarantine. Um, and they're having um, a really um, horrendous outbreak right now. And then you have on the other end of the spectrum, you know, places like Jordan and other countries um, in the Gulf that have managed to enforce quarantine and keep their numbers low. But they're also seeing um, gradual increases uh, in cases as they're reopening their economies. And so um, there's a lot to be learned and a lot to really dissect uh, to understand what's happening and where there are opportunities to do better in the region. Thank you so much, Dr. Rose, and thank you so much, Nikita. I think two of the points that you both stressed, and I think that very much bears repeating, is that even when taking COVID-19 um, from a regional perspective, the amount of diversity, both in the infrastructures of the country, as well as the countries themselves, mean that it is very difficult at times to even pinpoint um, similarities as much as differences because there are so many factors that come into play. I did want to touch on, um, I wanted to actually touch on something that you had said, Dr. Raz, and, and bring this question open to the group. You'd spoken that the, the work that the, the infrastructure that already was in place due to MERS actually was very supportive in terms of helping um, the healthcare system combat COVID-19 at least play a much more supportive role. I think it would be good now for us to discuss um, how, has, how is COVID-19 similar and different to outbreaks that have been seen in each of these various regions in the past? And what sort of um, decisions, both from a health, from a, um, health perspective, as well as an economic and um, trade and tourism perspective have actually affected the public health response that we've seen? Um, I'd like to start with Dr. Safraz and then move to Ms. Maria Espinoza. Thank you so much. Uh, I think in the region um, that I come from, the South Asian region, the footing was quite swift uh, to the extent that public considered it as a paranoia in, in the beginning. Uh, this region has some of the most stringent lockdowns which were initiated in March. Uh, on March 4th, the Afghan border closed, the airport scanning, gatherings banned. The National Security Council was mobilized. We had high-level National Coordination Com Committee constituted uh, in Pakistan very early into the pandemic, uh, before the first case was even, uh, you know, uh, diagnosed. On March 11th, when the WHO declared the pandemic within five days, uh, the government of Pakistan, they got uh, 588 million US dollars committed in earmark for COVID-19 response, uh, much before the appearance of a single case in the country. Uh, on March 17th, uh, the first case appeared in Pakistan and within a week, uh, we established the COVID-19 secretariat at the planning commission, which is the apex planning body within the federal government uh, with support from UNDP and it served as a conduit between 
uh, the government uh, and the UN partners and initiated on a comprehensive socio-economic impact assessment, which was very valuable and it fed into the uh, national action plans that we formulated following that. Uh, the local uh, permissions for local production of emergency drugs and supplies were um, granted and which was very useful and now that because at that time we didn't anticipate it we've, uh, the general you know perception was that we'll be over with this within a couple of months or so uh, but having those capacities uh, built up i think is paying us off now as we are moving into the fourth month of the epidemic we adopted in Pakistan a three-pronged approach. And uh, the first one, uh, which I think was uh, is common to a lot, uh, almost all, is saving lives, where the focus was on health, disaster management, and the security. There, there was a great focus on the security management. Uh, the second important um, uh, goal of this entire uh, you know, response was around saving livelihoods because uh, uh, they, we do have um, uh, uh, an identified you know, uh, percentage which is below the poverty line. But now with COVID-19, uh, there were people who were, who were trapped and pushed below the poverty line because they lost their livelihoods. And, were, and because of the lockdowns, they needed to be taken care of. So um, uh, the COVID-19 secretariat, uh, as it worked on the health component, it also simultaneously started working on the uh, livelihoods uh, component and how, you know, these people needed to be, uh, you know, compensated. Um, again, I, as we are now rolling into the fourth month of the epidemic, uh, we, are, uh, we have started working on the third, uh, you know, uh, the goal that we identified for the National Action Plan for COVID-19, and that was around salvaging the economies. And the economics, trade, and finance planning agenda, all this you know, started uh, rolling out. Because as we all know that this has been an epidemic, a pandemic, which has affected all sectors, and there's hardly anything which is not, you know, um, everything needed, we needed, we uh, had all our plans reviewed with a, COVID-19 lens, they were all adapted to the new situation. Our stringent measures, I think, in the region led to slow infection rates. However, the biggest irony with public health is that the measure of success of an intervention is the fact that something disastrous did not happen. As a result of which, all sorts of ambiguities emerged. That is, if nothing big was going to happen, did we need to go and do the lockdown? So there were quite a lot of question marks around it. And people started uh, thinking that maybe this epidemic is not going to come to us. We've developed some sort of an immunity because of the, because in uh, in the initial uh, couple of months, uh, our, we did uh, our cases were much less than what the predictions were showing. But then, for a long time, you know, con conspiracy theories floated on the universal vaccination and ECG-related protection, the warmer temperature temperatures in South Asia, younger population being spared. There were studies showing that, you know, because of uh, the people in the region uh, have had almost seven episodes of some sort of flu uh, by the time that they're 20 years. So this is giving them some sort of immunity. So these were all, um, it's, it was a myth um, among all these, you know, uh, assumptions that people made that the pandemic flew from China to Europe, skipping the region in the process. So this sense of false security prevailed and it became very challenging for us 
to um, ensure in compliance to the SOPs uh, because a lot of people felt they were not needed because our cases were not that uh, not that much, you know. So things happening elsewhere seemed just too far from home until it really hit hit home and. Uh, I, we, we, are, uh, we are now ensuring much uh, strictness towards compliance to these SOPs, uh, which um, I think if, uh, if this false, you know, um, uh, this, these thoughts, the false security that I mentioned, if that wouldn't have been there and people would have been a little bit more vigilant and had complied to the SOPs, I think the number would have been much less in the region. Thank you, Dr. Safraz. Um, Maria, same question. Um, thank you. Um, I think uh, the Latin American and Caribbean region, as other regions in the world, is in the world is very diverse. Um, just for a little bit of background, when cases were increasing in Europe, East Asia, and in the US, the region uh, was still at the early stages of the outbreak, um, as some of my colleagues have mentioned from other regions. The first case was a Brazilian man who traveled to Lombardy, Italy, and at the time there, there was a significant outbreak there, and that was in February. And then in late February, we had some cases in Ecuador and Mexico also confirmed. Um, after that, we have we have seen a change in, in numbers and we can discuss more later. The impact of the pandemic will, will be severe for, for the region. Uh, experts are already predicting a collective economic contraction of up to 5% of the regional GDP. And this is a region that was already affected by increased uh, poverty and extreme poverty, corruption scandals, violent uh, crime, income inequality, gender-based violence, xenophobia, and widespread social discontent. And I think uh, what's more important are the high numbers of forced migration uh, that, that the region is presenting. And the pandemic has made clear that migrant workers uh, make up an important part of the essential labor workforce. But for some countries that had um, um, already uh, complicated pre-COVID-19 trends, like uh, 2019 economic contraction in Mexico and high unemployment, like the numbers in Costa Rica, this will be exacerbated by the, the, by the pandemic. So if border closures persist, what will be the impact on stranded migrants, for example? Recently, the IDB pointed out that once the health crisis is over, we will face a scenario where countries, especially uh, those that are developed, will look more inward and they will try to protect supplies and turn into self-sufficiency. So what would this mean for public health collaboration, for example? Um, and also, I think it's important to understand that Latin America and the Caribbean, um, it's, it's a diverse region and most of the healthcare systems were already fragile and segmented before the pandemic. And there is a large diversity of political and social development, economic growth and political capacities that have really uh, impacted how different governments have responded to the crisis. Since the beginning, uh, we have seen two main trends. Um, the first one is by populist governments, left or right, such as Nicaragua, Mexico, and Brazil, who has uh, really downplayed uh, or ignored global health guidelines. 
And then at the other extreme, we have President Nayib Bukele of El Salvador, whose uh, authoritarian tendencies are on full display, and uh, he's using the pandemic to consolidate power. So I would like to give you two examples and then mention the case of, of Cuba. The case of Mexico, uh, uh, President Lopez Obrador persisted to call uh, for strict stay-at-home policies, even asking Mexicans to go out and enjoy life as usual uh, at the beginning of the outbreak. And he failed to adopt uh, urgent preparation for COVID-19. And it was not only until mid-March that the government started focusing on social uh, distancing and also imposed travel restrictions and closed non-essential businesses and also the US-Mexico border to uh, non-essential travel, which it's also affecting uh, border cities here in the US and in Mexico. However, as of yesterday, the country had reported 146,000 confirmed cases and more than 17,000 deaths. And despite these numbers, um, two days ago, Lopez, uh, President Lopez Obrador released a video saying that the most difficult part of the pandemic was over, even when the health ministry in Mexico suggested that uh, the country will hit the peak this week and maybe some parts of the countries in October. Um, and then at the other extreme, we have um, strict measures and quick responses by countries like Peru, Argentina, Chile, and Colombia. But then there is the case of El Salvador where, where the government of President Bukele declared the state of emergency on March 14th and has used the national police and the armed forces to uh, enforce his policy. He's even ignoring rulings by the Supreme Court. Um, he issued an order last week uh, saying that um, he will have a decree ending the quarantine today. So we will see how things continue to evolve in El Salvador. And then what's the situation for Cuba and how things uh, are looking? Uh, the fact that uh, Cuba has a universal healthcare system that's uh, it's being well regarded worldwide in terms of its scope and the training of its doc doctors has facilitated diagnosis, prevention, and treatment. The first cases we, we saw in Cuba on March 11th, uh, three Italian tourists and, and a Cuban. Um, and initially the response was, uh, I think, slow. Um, even the, the Cuba's Ministry of Tourism was presenting Cuba as a state destination for those who were looking to run away for, for, from cold weathers. But this approach quickly changed. And um, on March 23rd, Cuba's government officially policy uh, announced an initial set of 40 measures to fight the virus. Um, and they have continued to update the measures. The government intensified rapid testing and has created um, isolation centers. Um, since the confirmation of the cases in mid-March, 30,000 medical workers and students have been uh, going door to door to door to door to check on people in their homes and explain the steps. And I think of note too, many of the initial steps that were taken in Cuba were focused on vulnerable populations, especially the elderly since Cuba's population is aging pretty fast and they, they focused on monitoring and prevention uh, measures. As of today, Cuban authorities have confirmed more than 2000 cases and 1900 recovered patients and 84 deaths. And um, according to research by the America Society and Council of the Americas, they use the data that's being provided by the country's health ministries in the region and the UN Department of Economic and Social Affairs Cuba has the highest recovery rate in the region, which is 
78.4%. That's followed by Uruguay, Mexico, and Panama. Um, I can go more in depth about the, the measures that have uh, been taken in Cuba, but I want to also mention the importance of civil society in terms of, of uh, response. And this is very, very particular in Cuba right now with the private sector started to grow only 10 years ago. But right now, actors from Cuba's private sector and civil society have launched initiatives to support those affected by the pandemic, individual and community and religious organizations to have begun to make masks for distribution. We also see youth groups and social collectives that are organizing to deliver food and assist the elderly. And um, independent media outlets are offering daily coverage of, of COVID-19 related issues, which it's super important. They're touching on subjects that are not always covered by the QS state-run media. Um, and of note too, I think mid-May Cuba began mass testing for at-risk groups, not um, those that were not showing symptoms in places where they saw local transmission events. And the health ministry reporting heavily successfully adapted um, a technique for, for rapid testing using um, a technology that was originating in Cuba in the 80s to test for other viruses. And I think that's uh, uh, that helped uh, speeding up the testing capacity of, of the country. Thank you so much, Maria. And I, I really wanna emphasize a couple of the points that you've just stated in terms of the civil service, um, the civil society, and some of the vulnerable populations that you just touched on. I think that when we, when we consider COVID-19 case count and um, the overall burden of disease in populations, we sometimes neglect to, um, to acknowledge that when you're thinking about migrant workers or migrants in general, sometimes those numbers may not actually be the same as what you might think in the general population and that there may be added difficulties. In, in Kenya, for just as to give an example, migrants, some migrants are, are seeing a slightly increased burden because of the COVID-19 response, just due in part to the lack of access that they now um, have towards healthcare efforts, um, their inability to be able to leave their camps in order to receive any sort of support now that their health professionals can no longer come to them. And the fact that some individuals are, some groups are just susceptible, more susceptible to acute respiratory infections, just as it's been seen historically speaking. And I did, I did appreciate what you said, especially on the, um, on the economic components. I, I, I think we can say from, a, from the US perspective, there has been a lot of discussion both on the public health and the economic aspects of, the, of this outbreak. It's necessary for us to social distance. We need to avoid being in, in circumstances where we are um, coming into too much close proximity or we, we, we can exchange respiratory droplets. But at the same time, there is a threat of economic contraction and there is a very plausible um, threat that the world that we see either post COVID or what that we're, we're currently trying to build, unless it has some economic foresight into it, some ideas to how we're going to make sure that our workforces are taken care of or that certain jobs can be pivoted to better adjust, there will be some, there is almost guaranteed to be some loss. Um, Nikita and Dr. Rose, I also wanna open the floor to you on this topic as well. Um, Nikita, would you like to begin? 
Yeah, I think all of those points are extremely interesting. And when we talk about vulnerable populations, um, I think another population that we tend to overlook is the health workers themselves. And so to this end, I think your last question was about how is this similar, or how is this different to other disease burdens that we've dealt with in the region. And if this is different in the Eastern African context because of the certain training required for the case management. So it's really great that uh, the, the region is procuring ventilators and oxygen supply systems. But the major gap that we've seen is the fact that there aren't trained health cadres that can actually use these oxygen supplies and the ventilators to effectively help patients. Uh, there was a study done in Uganda in February 2020 where they studied 14 Ugandan ICUs. There were 171 ICU nurses of which only 13 had formal critical care nursing training. So it's very important to take into account training for these uh, healthcare workers, which has been a steep learning curve in the region. And then going back to this vulnerable population safety, it's important when we're thinking about PPE to also take into account all health workers and my specialty in the work that I do is in health systems and health workers, um, when we are thinking about what to procure because while we, think about health workers as hospital inpatient doctors and uh, medics, it's really important, especially in the region of East Africa and the continent of Africa, uh, there's a whole sector of community health workers, which are the backbone of the health, of the, uh, health system. And they're actually the largest group of uh, health workers and they do a lot of the outreach and the interaction with the patients in the more rural areas. So we see this distribution of hospitals and health centers uh, in the urban areas where you can get the specialized care and subspecialized care. But most of the care is ha happening at the rural areas outside of the cities. And that's where the community health workers are involved. And they have been historically, and we are seeing, they've been counted out of a lot of these calculations in terms of PPE, in terms of training, in terms of uh, getting the equipment that they need to do their job. So it's important that we think about not only inpatient care, but also this outpatient outreach care. And to your point, Leticia, about the uh, Kenya, the Kenya work, there was last week uh, a new uh, model that was developed by the Kenyan president for home care policy. Uh, they currently have about 3,000 cases um, and President Kenyatta had warned last week that hospital capacity is running out and that's a combination of their, uh, their comorbidity, comorbidities and their health uh, essential health work that they're already doing in that region and then as well as COVID. So they're planning expansions but those timelines are a little bit off. So this is the first country in the continent to create this home care policy where they're creating um, a, a whole care system around mild and moderate uh, coronavirus patients that will be cared at home. And then the same community health workers and volunteers would be going and being deployed to assess uh, these patients and giving them the care that they need. But back to your point about how these guidelines uh, don't take into account the fact that there's very high densely populated uh, homes and they aren't well ventilated. They don't have the resources in terms of uh, the comfort of having large spaces where patients can be quarantined. And 
these informal settlements in Kenya, and we're, we're gonna see this happening as it scale up to other countries in the region, um, might not actually be a feasible process. So we're seeing a lot of different iterations on case management, and this is extremely new for this, uh, this region of Africa where we see high prevalences of TB, malaria, HIV, but something as a respiratory uh, illness such as COVID, we're seeing this uptick in training, we're seeing um, these community health workers needing all the PPE, and then we're seeing these high dense populated areas where uh, these interventions might not actually work. So in theory, they sound great, but then in practice, it would actually be a detriment um, to the populations. Nick, can you back to Ross? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, all of these are really great points to bring up and they really highlight where our vulnerabilities are and where we could have done better in terms of preparation. So for example, we've known for a while that many countries in low income uh, in the low income context are one healthcare disaster away from, you know, complete economic collapse. And we've known for a while just how bad healthcare um, coverage is, you know, the number of healthcare providers um, uh, per capita that's been reported widely. And there've been some efforts to try to, you know, really think about shifting responsibilities to community healthcare workers and nurses and others, because the fact is we just don't have the numbers of um, uh, specialists, infectious disease docs, uh, surgeons, et cetera. Uh, and so there has been, you know, some thought given to how do we um, prepare for a pandemic, but uh, I think we need to, you know, really um, step back and think about, you know, what has worked in some, uh, in some contexts, some regions, some, some areas within uh, countries, you know, what has worked and what can we scale up as we're preparing for a second wave and for the next pandemic? Um, so, you know, a lot of what Nikita said is, uh, is really important to, to delve deep, um, you know, in each country and in, in each region to prepare better. The other, you know, big piece is the, um, the healthcare infrastructure uh, that has led to hospital-based transmission of infectious diseases. And we've seen many healthcare providers and other occupational cohorts are at a higher risk of getting infectious diseases because they've you know, historically not been um, uh, having enough access to PPE and to training. Uh, they don't have the information that they need to be prepared when there's a new um, outbreak uh, on the horizon. And, all of that has really led to unsafe work, working conditions um, for healthcare workers. And, you know, we have seen reports of healthcare work, workers and nurses and, you know, other physicians saying that um, we just can't work safely in these conditions. We, you know, unless we have a commitment and, uh, you know, real investment from governments and from others to protect us, we can't keep working uh, this way. Um, you know, MERS coronavirus in the in the MENA region, uh, you know, have, has really highlighted, especially in the early outbreaks, where there were weaknesses in the Gulf, and um, the Gulf was able to learn valuable lessons to prepare its hospitals and to prepare its workforce. So, you know, there is a greater understanding of um, respiratory 
infectious disease transmission once it's in a hospital system. Um, but the Gulf is really a unique setting in so many ways. They have uh, much higher resources than other parts of MENA and in other parts of the world, of course. Um, so there, you know, there still is a lot of uh, lessons to be learned and thoughtful analysis that really has to come into place to, to do better um, uh, in this regards. Um, I think the real issues we've had globally with testing also highlight the inadequacies of the global response to a pandemic and they highlight where, again, um, we haven't been prepared and we don't have a global uh, structure in place to really help us quickly um, deploy best practices to come up with sensitive and specific tests rapidly um, and to scale them up. You can see that what happened is um, a lot of the tests that were deployed early in the outbreak just really weren't good enough, you know, in terms of sensitivity, specificity, and other uh, markers that we usually use to assess testing. And then you know, you've got that issue that had we had a more global response, a more um, coordinated response, you know, maybe we could have worked um, on this aspect uh, a bit better and had a standard um, that could have been um, available, or at least a protocol that could have been uh, available broadly, globally. Um, there's also, you know, issues of how you scale up testing in countries when you don't have a functioning healthcare system. Um, so again, you know, this goes back to Yemen, Syria, Libya, among other countries in the region and, and sub-districts um, uh, sub in the region that are seeing um, high volumes of refugees and internally displaced populations. Um, so, you know, it's really come back to the basic public health surveillance, the basics of health systems are really needed in order to be better prepared to handle pandemics and infectious disease outbreaks. So, you know, if you, if we have better surveillance, better communication systems, whereby um, information of new cases from a district can trickle up to the ministry and vice versa, as ministries learn about, um, you know, potential uh, um, infectious diseases that could lead to outbreaks in their countries. We don't have a very, um, robust system of getting that information down from a national level to the local level. And so all of those uh, um, problems do need to be ironed out because, you know, all indications are we're going to have um, more of these kind of uh, pandemic events. And for COVID-19 specifically, many countries are still dealing with their first wave. And we're also seeing that there will be a second wave um, throughout the world, and you know, we're we're really in um, in, in in a precarious situation in many um, resource poor areas, uh, and much more needs to be done uh, in that regards as well. Thank you for that, Dr. Ross. Thank you very much. And I I really liked how you stressed the fact that we there is been so much knowledge on the fact that many of these countries that are seeing um, their healthcare systems struggling. That information was known, and that information was widely was widely available in many cases to individuals who work in this space. I also did want to bring in um, a point that I think has been has been alluded to by this group, and that is the fact that for some of these countries, when we're talking about a systems that are vulnerable, 
some of that, well, a lot of that vulnerability comes from a, an infrastructure and a resource need that just isn't there. It's important to remember too, that many of these countries also have outbreaks that they're fighting themselves. So while they may be fighting COVID-19, they may also be fighting something like cholera for looking at Yemen. They may also be fighting Lassa fever for looking in Nigeria or measles. Um, I, as we're thinking about the Democratic Republic of Congo, like there, in many cases, these these are systems who are whose very teams and staff that would normally be pulled in to fight against COVID nineteen are working double time because they have to take care of an equally pressing issue while trying to make their healthcare systems and their skill set readily available to combat the new illness or the the new problem that is on the forefront. And much of those much of that conversation needs to be is had at the decision making process for a public health response. Can we do this work? Can we is making this decision going to impact our ability to survey for cholera? If I tell individuals that they all need to stay home and nobody is going, and no one is going anywhere, am I certain that they have adequate sanitary water and hygiene capability that I don't have to worry about any diseases that they may acquire from uh, transmission of fecal matter like hepatitis A as an example? So there are many, there are so many components that need to be thought about I would also want to talk about the fact that when you just mentioned preparedness, um, from, we talk a lot about that in the public health space, how it's necessary to be prepared and how we need to make sure that we have some sort of a basis. And many times we find ourselves arguing that for people that preparedness is what you want to have in place in case something like this happens so that it is not as bad as you might think. But I'm beginning, I know that we tend to make the argument to people and it doesn't always land on, land on welcoming ears. And I think what we've now just seen with COVID-19, and um, Maria, I would actually really love to hear your point on this as well as Dr. Rose, is the fact that preparedness isn't just a public health question, but it is very much an economic question as some countries may have decided not to speak out or um, invoke heavy testing capabilities in the early onset because they were worried about some of the economic implications that might have, whether that's sanctions, whether that is loss of trade or for areas that depend heavily on tourism, whether that's a, um, a in either formal informal blocking of countries going into their particular location. Maria, would you mind talking to us more about some of those economic aspects that we may we maybe need to consider in our public health response and preparedness? Sure, uh, it's a great question. And, and as we were discussing here, I was thinking on, on a study from the UN Economic Commission for Latin America and the Caribbean at LAC. Um, uh, first, before COVID-19, the social situation in Latin America and the Caribbean was deteriorating. And then in, the, in this context, a LAC it's forecasting that the crisis will have not only a negative impact on, on education, employment and poverty, but also on health and on the health system. And, and when you study what, what determines that impact, it's really related to shortages that already existed on skilled labor and medical supplies, and then increasing costs 
For example, in Mexico, the current administration uh, cut the budget, um, and this has severely reduced public health system personnel and protective equipment, uh, even prompting um, protests by medical personnel. And according to a CLAC, and this is a very interesting number, so you understand how the investment in, in health infrastructure is it's really lacking, and we already knew that before the pandemic. In 2018, central government spending, um, and I'm talking about Latin America and the Caribbean, on the health sector was 2.2% of regional GDP. However, the Pan-American uh, Health Organization, PAHO, recommends 6% of GDP in order to reduce inequities and increase financial protection, especially in a region that's so diverse. Um, it's important to have additional resources that will help strengthen primary care and prevention. And I think this is one of the le lessons that uh, we're learning again from, from this crisis, um, the importance of having a strong prevention uh, system. Um, and, and then um, there are countries in the region that are in very extreme and complicated conditions. And that's the case of Venezuela, for example. We all know that there's, there's been a humanitarian crisis in Venezuela for, for a while and the system, the health system in Venezuela is in free fall. They have, I think only 81 functioning intensive care hospital beds and only 25% of doctors have reliable access to running water in the hospitals and clinics. But they also have been dealing for a few years now with other diseases such as measles and malaria. So, um, the, the pandemic is compounding and the, the lack of preparation and the political uh, situation in Venezuela is really complicating regional efforts. And um, I think Venezuela requires special attention in the Latin American and Caribbean region to coordinate efforts and, and, and to tackle what could have devastating consequences for the region and the world. Over the last four years only, four, seven, 4.7 million Venezuelans have fled the country. And this is a figure that is close to surpass the number of Syrian refugees. It's huge. And healthcare system in neighboring countries such as Brazil and Colombia were already overwhelmed by domestic demand. And now they will continue to receive Venezuelan neighbors. Although borders are closed, they have continued to receive them and are gonna be uh, hit by a second wave of the pandemic if that will be the case. And then um, the case of Brazil is very interesting in terms of probably access to resources, but then the unwillingness of the government to accept the importance of tackling the pandemic. And um, there's been a total disconnection also between the federal government and, and, and some governments at the state and local levels that have been forced to take their own measures. Um, so I think uh, it is, extremely relevant to invest in, in this fragmented healthcare systems in the region. Um, the, and I think this is the only way we're gonna, we're gonna um, be able to face another wave of, of the pandemic. Again, Latin America and the Caribbean is many countries in the region are seeing a peak right now and having unique, uh, unequal health systems and, 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 uh, having also specialized services that are super concentrating in urban centers is not, is not helping uh, preventing the, the pandemic. So 
the region as others is suffering from inequalities, is suffering from, from all uh, social policies that are ineffective and from all economic policies that are also ineffective but, um, to prevent the pandemics. So, you know, I find myself thinking a lot about uh, where the communication failure was. So for example, um, you know, public health has said for a while, you know, one pandemic will lead to, could lead to significant human um, toll, morbidity and mortality, as well as um, economic, uh, an economic global recession, right? We've said that for a while, we've known it for a while, we've had a couple of drills, right? There was several MERS coronavirus outbreaks. There was, you know, a MERS coronavirus outbreak that ended up in South Korea. And, you know, we saw just the amount of work it took to contain the outbreak, especially once it got into the hospital settings. The SARS, uh, SARS-1, right? That uh, outbreak did have a significant impact on the GDPs of, um, you know, Hong Kong, China, Canada, and a couple of other areas that were hit hard. Um, we had the Ebola experience, the H1N1 or you know, swine flu experience. And it seems that somehow the economic consequences of these pandemics, you know, that, that thought didn't resonate with policymakers and didn't um, really resonate with the, the global governance community you know, who could have really invested in um, setting up stronger surveillance and other infrastructure to help us deal with the coming pandemic that we've been warned about several times. And I, and I find myself wondering, you know, um, where was that communication failure? How could we have communicated that better? And then also, um, what do we do now? And can we possibly do better? Because I'm still really uh, I'm, I still feel as though at the end of the day, as soon as COVID-19 is under control and we get a vaccine or therapeutics in place, we're gonna go back to, I think, business as usual in a way. And we're not gonna really come out of this with true lessons learned, you know, outside of the health and public health community. Um, and, you know, I've got a lot of questions about that and would really love to hear, you know, um, Maria's thoughts and others' thoughts on this. Thanks so much. Um, I'm going to ask uh, Nikita and Dr. Safras to also speak on that topic before I ask a final question. Yeah, I think this is a really interesting topic in terms of health system strengthening and in terms of just the infrastructure that's around in the East African area. Uh, Ethiopia, one of the biggest uh, countries in the region, has created other treatment centers that can accommodate up to a thousand patients. And uh, they've retrofitted other areas in order to deal with some of these surge cases. I think an interesting lesson learned from the East, uh, the East African region is the fact that Maria had touched upon this disjointed nature of the health systems. Um, you have the public sector, which very much is under the government, uh, the government eye. So you have the FMOH that actually deals with all of the public hospitals, which is where the majority of patients are actually con uh, concentrated. And then you have this inequality in terms of all these private hospitals and NGOs and other international organizations. And this disjointed nature 
of the health system has led to that inequality where either private um, private hospitals will poach the really good public, uh, the, the doctors coming out of the public education, or you see this really, this phenomena of emigration where people are leaving and quote unquote brain drain um, from this region to go to the global north in order to make more money, uh, but they've gone through the whole government system in terms of training where the government is funding them and then um, they leave the system. So an interesting thing that has been done because of COVID in this region has been um, this push to put together a list of the private sector, the retired, um, volunteers, NGO, health workers across the region within the country. Um, so then they have what they're calling reserves to deploy during the peak of the outbreak. So in Rwanda, they'd been training a reserve team, which is being comprised of clinicians and non-clinicians who can deal with some of the caseworking and also the contact tracing at each of the provincial hospitals. And then the Uganda government has declared that they're emergency hiring 3,660 health workers. So this lack of centralized data has really fed into this disjointed uh, health system where they're, they're not keeping uh, medical records, they're not keeping the, these records of doctors or they're not updating them at a, a high frequency where we'll go in to find a doctor and then we'll see that they've actually left on sabbatical or they've died or they've retired and no longer work in the system. And then in which case they're still on payroll or they're still, as we call them, ghost workers. Um, they're still tagged to a subspecialty and they're still being counted in the data for the country when in reality, they're not providing services. So that's been a really interesting push from a lot of these governments to actually finally do this landscaping of health workers to get an accurate um, detailing of not only the public sector, but just any of the health workers in the private sectors and NGOs that they can deploy uh, once the surge capacity is reached. And in this region, we haven't seen the peak hit yet. So um, that was that's gonna be an interesting lesson learned, I think that can come out of this region. Thank you, Nikita. Dr. Safras? I think the systems all around uh, the world have been you know, put to test uh, with this current pa pandemic. Uh, I'm sure you're all familiar with the joint external evaluation, which ranked the countries for you know, their, their systems uh, uh, around integrated disease surveillance and response. And we've seen countries like US, UK, which scored very high. And while they were countries which were at the bottom, and uh, they fared almost similar or even better than the countries which were, you know. So it was not only the systems, but it was also the decision-making, the right decision-making at that point, you know, which, uh, which is something for all of us to really uh, recognize, you know. And I think uh, what, um, it, what it has brought down, uh, one thing is that somehow I feel that the right priorities are coming up because there has always been, uh, if you look at the continuum of care, the budgets uh, were largely focused on to the curative uh, part of the treat uh, of the continuum of care rather than the promotive and preventive part. And now, uh, if you look at the, um, uh, you know, the COVID-19, the number one, uh, you know, uh, measure which can help uh, prevent is uh, hand washing, you know, so having these national 
programs around wash and all have become so more, so much more important so it's not only the system strengthening aspect of it but i feel this has to be coupled with the right priorities where the promotive and preventive aspects of care need to be brought into place yes the data systems are very important because they are the ones which help you into taking a proactive rather than a reactive approach these early warning and response systems and also i feel that because the situation is ever evolving so you need these technical advisories issued and also evaluation of the decisions which are being made that is also important if you're doing the lockdowns if you're doing you know certain interventions the research is ongoing so i think uh, it it is a very fluid uh, situation for all the countries we are learning as we are implementing it's a very very unique situation that we have put ourselves uh, into but uh, i hope that this will help us build the resilience for future epidemics to come in by identifying the gaps that every country is uh, continuing to learn and also from other regional countries in their effective response. Thank you, Dr. Safraz. I think those, that was an excellent point that you've made, especially when you touched on the JEE. And I would, I would actually argue the same thing. Most, if not all of our metrics that we've been using to determine who's going to do well and who's not going to do well in the face of this actual pandemic have kind of been thrown into the air. In terms of who's actually who can who's been re responding effectively, um, I would also say that one observation that I have uh, gleaned from here is so many countries that in were in the process of building out regional responses or regional capabilities to do that work. Um, I think we'll need to start rethinking their model and asking themselves if this regional capacity. Um, while it may, may make sense financially and it may help accommodate some of this um, brain drain, how does that model necessarily, how impactful is that model when you do have an outbreak like that of COVID, which is hitting everybody in, in an indeterminate way and we're seeing a high degree of caseload. Um, I wanted to ask one last question to this group before I open it up. I see we have a couple of audience-based questions. But um, I, I think everything that we've all talked about has um, focused a lot on what's happened to this point, where we went astray, and where were some gaps that were once small and have now gotten bigger. And I think we're all very much aware that there's a second wave that's coming. I think based off of everything we know um, and how much we're willing or comfortable speaking to this, how do you believe that the case management both in the hospital and healthcare setting, as well as just in the civil society setting, will be altered from lessons learned in the first wave um, to its treatment of COVID-19 when the second wave hits. I'm going to ask Dr. Ruiz to begin. I will ask Dr. Safras to go next and Nikita and Maria Espinoza. We hope that a lot of the um, healthcare providers will, you know, um, have really internalized a lot of the lessons learned moving forward and will be able to um, respond in a way that protects them and protects uh, you know, patients and other individuals. Um, I think there you know, is going to be more, uh, more and more calls by healthcare providers and by citizens to really provide infrastructure, PPE and support to them. Um, and you know, in Iran, 
there were so uh, many healthcare providers that lost their lives. And I think that really hit, uh, you know, the, the Iranian culture. Um, and the hope is that, you know, you're going to see um, some real changes in terms of the demands that citizens make and healthcare providers make to provide uh, better response and better protection in the future. I mean, that's what I hope we see. Thank you, Dr. Safras. Yes, I think, uh, you know, there, we've seen quite a bit of evolution in there as well because uh, different, you know, uh, protocols came in, they were being replaced very rapidly as we were learning about the disease. Initially, I remember when we had a team from China who came in, they were very against home isolations or home care of mild or moderate cases. But now when the caseloads have become so uh, huge, it's becoming very difficult even for countries with a very good health infrastructures to accommodate the large number of mild and moderate cases in there, you know. So there had been a lot of revision and I think we will continue to do so in, uh, as, you know, we, uh, uh, as this epidemic moves forward. And also in terms of the regimes, you know, that we are using, I mean, we've, uh, we started with, uh, you know, uh, hydroxychloroquines and all those different things, and now dexamethasone today. So, I mean, these things are going to come, but because you need time for these trials to really, you know, uh, but uh, because of the mortality linked with it, the countries are, you know, undergoing a lot of uh, experimentation in terms of that. But I think um, one thing that I really want to em uh, emphasize is that, you know, in these times, the focus had been just COVID, you know. What about the other diseases? And, you know, the systems were just, uh, we all became blind to all the other ongoing, you know, health uh, issues that the, uh, that the population was challenged with. And I was just taking a review of, you know, our family planning services because they were closed out. And for the last four months, there haven't been any family planning method provision. And because of which uh, we all know the unmet need for family planning will rise, the unintended pregnancies will increase, the cases for induced abortions, uh, septic abortions, which again, you know, the risk of maternal mortality, morbid, morbidity, you know, all this is going to uh, have a huge impact, you know, again, vaccination, immunization, all these services disrupted, the tuberculosis patients, you know, the HIV patients, I mean, they're, they're not getting their treatments and this disruption is happening everywhere globally. So the impact of this is, uh, is something which is not catching the attention of a lot of policymakers and the media is also, you know, quite silent on that. But I, because it's going to be something that we've all uh, have to, they, they, we've started talking about it, that yes, we'll have to live with it. But actually, these are all the things that we have to take a, now started taking an umbrella view of all the disruptions that it has caused because uh, COVID was uh, still has the mortality with COVID is much less than the mortality with these other diseases in so many countries, you know. So it's, it's not a top uh, ranking, uh, uh, you know, uh, mortality is not linked with that, but because we're following it up, and I think the social media is not helping us uh, in, the, in that uh, context. And uh, we really need to, you know, at the policy level, we need to address these disruptions 
because the impact of them uh, we will start seeing them after another six to nine to months and also and we are uh, to be honest we are not prepared for that we don't hear a lot of countries talking about uh, this matter and uh, that is my concern because if we start unfolding some of these you know areas there uh, it, it's quite disturbing to see uh, how things are you know uh, under that Thank you, Dr. Safras. Uh, Nikita? Yeah, I absolutely agree with everything that was said by the uh, last two speakers. I think a big lesson learned in the East African region is while uh, air, air transport was severely limited and they restricted that uh, due to international pressure, uh, we're seeing that a lot of the cases that are um, now coming up are from, from truck driving and not closing the borders uh, to neighboring countries. And so that's a big lesson learned in terms of how we can uh, make sure that truck driving and that movement between the countries in the same region uh, can be uh, identified and can be uh, mitigated. And a big, a big issue is also that the, the trucks that are coming from the coastal areas into more landlocked areas, um, the landlocked countries such as Uganda and Rwanda very heavily rely on that import in terms of uh, agriculture and in terms of getting uh, their supplies. And so it becomes a little bit difficult to track those movements and to mitigate those movements. Whereas in more of the coastal countries, it's okay uh, to uh, mitigate some of those movements. So the government of Uganda has recently said that they will not be restricting movement um, because the current focus should be on reducing the time of getting the results and doing internal contact tracing rather than reducing movement due to the just immense need of food and food security. And I think that also plays into the fact that the East African region is extremely unique because they had this biblical uh, locust, this locust um, swarm that happened in May and June which completely decimated, it decimated the entire agricultural area. And I'm not a, I'm not a agriculture person, but this combined with the, the comorbidities that um, Dr. Safraz was talking about combined with COVID has become uh, an immense problem. And the first wave of locusts happened in May and they're, they're anticipating another wave. And these are billions and billions of locusts happening in June and July. And in which case, it looks like they're they're estimating that almost 40 million people in East Africa will experience food insecurity. And so there hasn't been a lot of discussion around that in terms of the intersection between health and food. Um, and that is very important, especially with these borders closing to imports uh, for food. Um, and then how will we supplement all of that loss of food and loss of nutrition in terms of keeping up with uh, malnutrition and keeping up with uh, health, health access. And then the last point that I'll make is a huge learning that I hope will happen in the second wave of COVID is uh, barring misinformation. So while we've seen some countries, and this has to come from a government uh, from the top down, from policymakers. So while we've seen some countries do a, a fantastic job in spreading information and leveraging technology to get WhatsApp groups, to get information in the rural areas such as Uganda, 
We've seen other countries such as Tanzania, which has led an immense crackdown on anyone who raised concerns about the viral spread in the country. And critics had been arrested, activists had their phone tapped, the international community, there was a huge uproar because they were not reporting the correct cases uh, to the international community about the true scale of the pandemic. And the president had absolutely refused to, uh, to shut down any churches because of misinformation around COVID and the lack of transparency and the lack of confidence that he had in the accuracy of the tests at the laboratory. So hopefully going forward, we can use these acute case studies in Tanzania and Burundi where these governments did not take it seriously and you do see um, a surge. And like I mentioned before, the Burundian president, the outgoing president died yesterday from COVID. So we hopefully can use that as some case studies and as some learnings to in the future have more streamlined communication, have better information and hopefully more intersection with other uh, departments such as the agricultural department, education department, and other health sectors. Thank you, Nikita. Um, Maria, would you like to speak to this as well? Yeah, um, I'm not a public health expert, but I would like to mention a few factors that I think need to be considered in any current and upcoming public health response to COVID-19, especially in the region. Um, and I'm going to take advantage of that and answer one of the, uh, start answering one of the questions about civil society response. Um, First, I think we need to see, as we have all mentioned here, good communication strategies for preventive measures in the country's population, but also in neighboring countries. And this is important because I think any response should be aligned with recommendation from the WHO. And, and something that we haven't touched here, but it's really affecting uh, regional responses all over the world is the um, cutting funds for WHO and how that's affecting from uh, the treatment to asylum seekers in the region to, to other very specific responses. And, and we need to, go to start thinking also about the residual impacts from COVID-19 related policies and on human rights and civil liberties in the region. And um, as thinking about this, I think one, one important factor is the disproportionate impact that the pandemic is having on women and girls, especially on um, uh, women of color, black communities, indigenous communities all over the world, and how the civil society organizations um, and private individuals are stepping up to, to respond to, to this. Um, and I would like to point out to a few things that I think should be considered by governments, by civil society actors, and also um, uh, by regional organizations. And we know that uh, UN Women, UNICEF, um, have warned up that the crisis has very specific impacts for women and girls. First, that uh, due to mandatory stay-at-home measures, there is an increase in domestic violence. Second, women are more exposed to contagion because they are the main caregivers, both within the health systems and in homes, and we have touched this already. So seeing the intersection of health security and gender, it's extremely important as we move forward with strategies as countries and as a region. Also as a result of the closure of schools, and we've 
the entire family staying at home, the burden of care and domestic work increases for women. Women are more uh, have more presence in the informal economy, and this includes uh, includes domestic work. And this is seriously affected by mobility restriction. How are governments going to respond and to tackle these issues as we see second waves of the of the pandemic? Um, these challenges need to be considered by institutional policies, but also by civil society responses. If we don't address them right now, gender inequalities and, and their horrible effects are going to persist and, and I think might grow uh, more severe as the pandemic advances. And um, in terms of civil society uh, responses, a few examples that are related with gender policies, we saw that in El Salvador, the Office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights, it's providing technical support to civil society organizations and states in, state institutions that are working for legal defense of women that have been deprived of liberty. So this is a, a good example in the region. They're also working with indigenous authorities in Panama and women's organizations and in Cuba, uh, it, this is super relevant. Civil society organizations have stepped up to support women suffering from domestic violence and other types because there are no wide ranging institutional measures to tackle it. And this is, hasn't been a topic presented in the political discourse in Cuba. And although the, the rates of gender violence um, are comparable to world, world average. The country uh, has a uni universal healthcare system, but there are no specific official uh, telephone lines to make complaints or uh, inquiries about these issues. So in the middle of the, of the crisis, actions in this regard have been uh, coming fundamentally from civil society. There are two channels right now, only two channels, uh, telephone and virtual that provide advice and support uh, victims of domestic violence. But this is not enough in a, in a country with an 11 million um, population. So I think there's still much to be done in this regard. But as we move forward uh, on policies from civil society and from regional actors, we need to look for coordination and we need to look for intersections that are super relevant um, in order to tackle the crisis. Thank you so much for that, Maria. I, I especially liked the point that you referenced in terms of civil society starting to fill some of these gaps. I also wanted to chime in that at least in this second wave, the number one thing I want people to understand is that COVID-19 is not something that is going to disappear overnight and it is not going to disappear in two months. We need to start behaving and planning as if this is going to be with us for quite some time because some estimates are 24 months of having to deal with COVID-19 until we are at a place where we can at least mitigate and come back to some form of normal. Um, I would also argue that that stage of normal should not look like what we just left. We are in many ways in this situation because we did not take, we, we did not value preparedness and we did not um, take, we may have taken for granted, um, I'd say the, the luck that certain outbreaks flare up and have and die out. We didn't really, we don't always consider that some things can truly stay um, long-term with us. I also think that in the second, I would hope at least in the second wave of COVID response, especially case management, and I mean for this worldwide, that we have a uniform method of case counting 
not whether that is case counting just in the hospitals or case counting um, through homes or through um, directly methods like that have been done in South Korea, the number of fluctuations that we have in our case numbers make it very difficult to mobilize a public health response and makes it difficult to understand what resources we need. And it also makes it challenging to be able to have our hospitals who on average already work at maximum capacity um, mitigate their caseloads and know when and how to adjust in order to create a strong um, response towards this disease. I would also say that I think we need to branch the, argue, the conversation of preparedness from public health to what um, I feel really is, which is a security question. Preparedness, pandemic preparedness, emergency preparedness is at its heart security. That's why elements of the global health security agenda really stress on preparedness. You, that's why you could take NTI's global health security index and utilize it to understand where are you, where are we good and where are we failing on the preparedness um, spectrum. And I think that there really should be a, a refocus on that. Um, I see that we have some questions from our audience, from our audience, but I understand as well that um, some of these questions have been answered. There is one question that has been asked that um, has not been answered yet. And that question is focusing on um, COVID-19 as it's affecting people and persons who live in high conflict zones. So that could be um, the Democratic Republic of Congo specifically and the Eastern areas. That could be anywhere where they're having high conflict and civil unrest, either because of neighboring factions or areas that are being um, unduly ostracized by, by their governments or by neighboring governments. How is that vulnerability being further exacerbated by COVID-19? Um, could I please ask Dr. Safraz um, and Dr. Roas to speak on this? Dr. Safraz, may I ask that you go first? Um, I think the times that we have, you know, ahead are quite unpredictable and uh, things are going to evolve and we have to keep a very close watch on, you know, how um, things are going to, uh, we have to keep, uh, as we fight the situation, we have to be very flexible uh, as we move forward and to see, you know, how, uh, uh, because things which uh, a lot of things that we thought are going to work one way in terms of case management, in terms of medications, in terms of lockdowns, in terms of economic revival have already changed as we've, you know, uh, come to where we are uh, right now. So we need to look, uh, keep looking at the situation with a very open mind, uh, keep on learning from, you know, the neighboring countries, how, you know, things are, they, there are, uh, countries who are managing to do some of, uh, you know, addressing some of these challenges ahead of us. So I think uh, uh, those who are uh, going to, you know, uh, learn by do uh, it, it is learning by doing as we are moving along, you know, we are continuing to learn. So we have to keep ourselves and we would need to invest a lot into um, uh, datas, into our uh, developing our deeper insights, and also into uh, research 
so that we are able to, and in doing so it's not only that for our respective regions our respective countries we are strengthening you know the evidence base for programming for policies for reforms for revivals but also creating some success, uh, successes and le lessons learned for the region and also globally so that is going to be my you know take on to that I think um, we also need to really spend some time thoughtfully going over what has been happening that has led us to this point where we don't have, you know, a global preparedness response that's really robust enough to handle these challenges. And, you know, the, the other big thing is to think through, um, you know, we ha we've had so many uh, really great programs that have brought together people from different regions of the world, different countries of the world and train them together and really uh, uh, set them up to collaborate long-term. And that's been key for uh, at least improving uh, surveillance between countries and you know, between groups of countries. And sometimes you know, I think that that is uh, more lasting and can be a long-term um, of long-term benefit, especially right now when we are in an era of increased nationalism. So many countries around the world have really moved into this, um, this, this rhetoric of nationalism that really has undermined um, a lot of the, the global health infrastructure that we've set up. And so you almost do need two approaches, one that brings together individuals and people um, who collaborate and have long-term relationships, and then the other is going to be, you know, continuously striving to have global health systems at national levels that encourage countries to speak to each other and to collaborate. Um, uh, but recognizing that, you know, on the whim of uh, nationalistic agendas, you might have uh, you might have to rely on the uh, the much lower level of communication um, to to address this. Uh, global health surveillance aspect of response that's so critically needed. So uh, I think that is something uh, that we do need, especially as we move into, you know, what may be a second wave and subsequent waves of this outbreak and other future pandemics. Thank yeah, to quickly that. add on to that, because um, you did mention the DRC, the, the importance of community health workers is paramount in those sections where they can actually go and do outreach in the community at a very low level rather than doing it at the regional level or even at a national level um, for, the, for the conflict areas. And it's even more important in conflict areas, especially a country like DRC, where there isn't misinformation and the government has a very strong handle on the information that is going out because it's very tough to roll back information. And so when you're equipping these community health workers to go and collect data uh, to make sure that everyone has a standardized uh, idea or training of A, what they're going to be counting and the uh, interventions that they're rolling out, but also the information that they're providing um, in these in these situations. Thank you for that, Nikita. Um, I do, I do want to stress that even when we have scenarios where we have um, community health workers and entities rolling out information, it is much important where that information is coming from and where it's accessible as it is that the information is there. Because for some, a lot of communities, as Congo as well as many other countries, even in the United States, who is saying it and how they're saying it is just as important as what is being said. And the, I would, 
absolutely stress in this next response to meet people where they are at. For some individuals, um, in in the in the case of let's say Nigeria, one of their one way of meeting people where they're at came from dispelling myths, and I think we have a lot of that in our mind that we too myth bust. But in the case of some communities in the United States, myth busting is not the most important thing that needs to be done. Sometimes what actually needs to be focused on is the line of demarcation between self-determination and responsibility. You are your own person. And yes, you should feel free to have some control over your life, but understand that there's also a responsibility that you have as a member of a community and as your community does towards you to keep each other safe and to never lose sight of that. So that messaging and that need to be able to meet people where, where they currently are residing, especially in this wave of nationalism where as um, Dr. Roa said, groups are saying, well, my problem is because of you. If you leave, my problem is going to disappear. Um, that self-determination bit and um, really needs to be like drilled home that yes, we, we're no, no one's telling you that you're a bad person, but this problem is not because of this individual and this individual is trying to keep you safe as well. Um, we have a, a few minutes left. Um, I believe that we've answered all of the questions that have been sent in. So I want to open the floor to our lovely panelists. First, thanking them all for joining me here today. Uh, thank you to Ambassador Bonnie Jenkins for putting together this wonderful event and to the um, WCAPS organizer, Neda Shaheen, for bringing us all together as well. I'd like to open the floor for final statements from everyone. Could I please begin with Maria? Then we can move to Dr. Safraz, Nikita, and Dr. Roz. Thank you. I just uh, want, want to thank you and uh, the wonderful colleagues that uh, were here today. Of course, all you caps, Ambassador Bonnie Jenkins and Neda for organizing these events. And I, uh, I really encourage us all to continue talking and working together on these issues. As we have all concluded here, this is something that will continue for a while now. So um, I, I, I'm really encouraged by these conversations and by further action. Thank you, everyone. Dr. Safras. Um, well, I, I, I strongly feel, you know, that uh, uh, this uh, COVID-19 uh, crisis has brought with it a lot of opportunity for us to be doing things which we always advocated for because they have uh, got the attention of the policymakers at the highest level. And it is our time to now, you know, uh, to have some real change. And uh, this is an opportunity which needs to be exploited and keeping the vulnerable populations, uh, you know, uh, uh, and having a focus on them while we are making our plans and uh, rolling out uh, different programs uh, is uh, certainly brings us hope for a much more equal world, you know. And this is something which, uh, which uh, we are very conscious of here as we are working uh, on our plans and we want to include the right indicators so that we don't lose our focus, you know, uh, into some of the areas that we, uh, we have to walk the talk, you know. 
So, and for doing so, so they, they ha we have to use the lens while designing these programs, while executing them, we need to ensure that we are getting the data to report on, you know, our indicators for the marginalized and for the vulnerable populations. So in doing so, again, bringing the focus to preventive and promotive parts of the continuum of care is extremely important in countries from the system strengthening point of view, the primary level care has to be, you know, strengthened and in order to build our resilience for any future episodes of this sort. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, everyone. Thank you, WCAP. Thank you, Ambassador Bonnie. Thank you, Nida. And thank you, Atisha, for being such a great moderator. Um, I think in terms of lessons learned and just final remarks, it's been amazing to hear what other people have been working on in different regions. I completely agree. There needs to be a strengthening at all levels of health work and health systems. Uh, I also agree that there needs to be more indicators that are put into place. And this is an immense opportunity for us to look at gender equality and for us to look at more diversity and equity uh, within the stuff that we're monitoring and evaluating. Uh, I also I think a lesson learned here is not to forget about the other health, essential health packages that need to be provided uh, alongside of the COVID response and any other pandemic that might crop up. And even with this locust happening in June, that needs to be something that uh, is planned in parallel with any other rollouts um, for future pandemics. So I think there's a lot of lessons learned about how we can make our health systems more effective and more efficient, starting with counting all of the health workers, getting that data, and then thinking about distribution and deployment and cross-country um, partnerships and negotiations. So thank you everyone, and I'm looking forward to seeing what everyone else is next. Yeah, I echo that uh, gratitude. Thank you, uh, Ambassador Jenkins and Natisha uh, Neda for bringing us all together. Uh, I learned a lot, you know, and. Uh, and there's uh, many perspectives that do need to take it, need to be taken into account as we uh, try to do better in terms of preparedness. You know, there's the healthcare aspect like we talked about and the uh, unintended consequences of quarantine and isolation, the mental health aspects of this, right? There's the economic consequences and, you know, the political uh, um, posturing that happens whenever there's any kind of a health crisis that leads to uh, other health and social crises. So I think there's a lot to be learned here. And, you know, I'm hopeful that um, we will come out of this with at least a path forward to improve our um, preparedness planning. And, you know, hopefully we'll have um, a better understanding, at least among uh, global leaders, about the economic ramifications of not having a preparedness plan. Um, so, you know, with that, thank you again, and um, I, uh, I hope to see you all in this virtual space soon. Thank you so much, everyone, and thank you for the feedback. Um, thank you to everyone who's been listening on Facebook, and thank you to everyone who's joined us on Zoom. And please, if you have more questions, please email them to WCAPS, and please stay Please keep following on with WCAPS to, to know more about what work is being done. And especially if you wanna hear more of these global dialogues on the overall COVID response. Thanks to everybody. And we wish you a wonderful day, 
evening or morning if you're calling us from outside the other side of the world. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Bye.